Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. This morning, I want to launch into a short series. Uh, How many of you are familiar with the term Advent? Yeah, Advent is a technical Christian term talking about the weeks leading up to Christmas. But in just general English, it means arrival. Arrival. And what Advent is, is it's a period of time during which we prepare our hearts and minds to acknowledge the arrival of Jesus on the first Christmas. And this week, I want to start the first of a three-part series, preparing our hearts for the arrival of Jesus as we commemorate it on Christmas. And I want to begin with the passage John 1.14, or the verse. I shouldn't call it a passage. John 1.14. And the title of the message is God with us. And before I look at John 1.14, I want to start at the beginning of the book of John. John was a gospel written by the Apostle John, who was one of the closest friends of Jesus while he was on the earth. They had a very intimate friendship. And so when John wrote his gospel... It definitely sounded different from the other Gospels. There was an intimacy, a familiarity in the Gospel of John that you don't really pick up in the other Gospels. And you get the sense that this was written by a man who was a personal friend of the Savior he is describing. And yet, strangely, as it opens up, John begins with one of the most faraway cosmic beginnings of any of the four Gospels, which I found curious because if I'm writing a story of one of my closest friends, I start with, here's what happened the day I met Jesus. I was on a boat minding my own business and this weird guy comes up and says, you, what are you doing? And that's how I would have started the story. But look how John begins the story. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What a weird place to start a letter, a a, a writing about one of your closest friends. Why does he begin by introducing Jesus to us as the word? What's the significance of that? Well, what do you know about words? One thing I think we all have learned is you really get to know a person through their words. It's one of the primary ways you get to know what's in someone's head. So, you know, how many of you ha- have had a relationship with someone who's unusually quiet and non-disclosing? It's like Fort Knox. You've got to just pry out. Come on, just tell me what's on your mind. Nothing. I'm, I'm talking about every teenager on earth, granted. But I'm also talking about adults, people that are at the same age as you, and they never really express anything. They'll tell you when they're irritated or hungry or whatever, but it's rare for them to say just voluntarily, this is what's on my heart. Here's what I'm thinking. Some of you are kind of like, I'm sitting, don't, don't look, don't look, don't jab them. But you're sitting next to that person possibly. And it's weird to be so close to someone to whom you have so little access because between you, very few words are ever really exchanged. And you can say, well, you know me already. Have you ever come across that? Tell me you love me. Why? You already know. Because I need to hear the words. Because words are the way relationships are built. At least at the beginning, words are imperative. They're absolutely important for a relationship to form. 
And the reason words matter so much is because words are a window into the heart and the true nature of another person. I, I'm so confused because I've met people who are like, they, they never say anything, they never disclose anything, and they're all offended that no one knows them. And I'm like, how on earth are we supposed to know you? You are like a statue. Unless I pry it out of you or something happens so distressing, you have to shout it, I don't hear your voice. And it makes me feel terribly alone in this relationship. And so it's very telling that when God introduces his son to us through John, the word he uses is the word. He says, this person, this savior, this Jesus that you've known as a friend and as a brother began from all, all eternity back as the word of God. Not the words of God, but the word, which means this is the singular statement that discloses the full nature and the heart of God to us. If you've ever shouted at the sky, God, what do you like? What do you want from us? Who are you? The single answer he could give to us every time is look at Jesus and you'll get me. You don't have to look anywhere else. You look at Jesus and you will begin to understand who God really is because the things he needs for us to know about him, he has primarily communicated in the person of Jesus Christ. So what we're establishing is without communication, you cannot really have a relationship. And how comforting to know that our Savior, the Son of God, is primarily described to us as the Word of God. The desire of God's heart is to communicate with us so that we can know Him. We don't have to figure Him out like a riddle. He's not playing shy or hard to get. He wants to be known. But how many of you know that over the course of a relationship, words are not enough. We're just saying that, didn't we? As we're singing, words are not enough, I was, I was kind of like, I wish the next line wasn't listen to our hearts, but look at our hands. Watch our feet. Follow our money. Because I really believe at the end of the day, words are not enough. At some point in any relationship, I don't want to just hear your words, because how many of you also have been in a relationship with someone whose words are so rich and sweet, but whose actions are absent. I found it very, every married man, you can say amen with me, right? It's very easy to go, yes, dear. I, I say it automatically. I have no one, I'm not even sure what she's saying. I just know if I say yes, dear, she stops talking. So I go, yes, dear. And then I go, wait, wait, what did you ask me? I think it's so easy at some point to also just keep giving words because words have a certain effect. I say these words, this person behaves this way. But at some point, we also hunger not just for communication, but for the embodiment of those words. I need to see those words translate into something real so that I know that the things you're trying to tell me about you are really representing what's there. In order to have a relationship, we need communication, but we also need the embodiment of those words. And what we celebrate at Christmas is something the theologians call the incarnation. It's this. In John 1.14, guys, help me out here. I think I need you to click. There we go. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. How many of you guys took Spanish junior high or high school? Okay, so let me do a little quiz for you. What does the word carne mean? 
carne. Flesh, what else does it mean? Meat. When you say uh, at, the, at the taco place, I'd like carne asada, you're not saying I would like f- flesh. You're really saying I would like some meat, please. Really, we're talking about beef. So carne means meat. And that's based on the same Latin root word as incarnation, which really means that at some point, the word of God, the essential eternal representation of what God truly is at his core, became meat. It took on literally, Jesus is God in the flesh. It's everything in essence that God stands for and who he is. And it took on human form and encased himself in a meat suit to say, I'm going to limit myself in some way to the full experience and boundaries of what you are so you understand in a visible, relatable form. Here is who I am and what I'm about. The incarnation which we celebrate at Christmas is that at one point God said, I'm not going to just give you words throughout the whole Old Testament for thousands of years. He did that all the time. He sent prophet after prophet who began with, when I speak, I'm speaking for him. Don't shoot me. Don't get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. And he would send his word through messengers over and over. And what they did was they kept killing these messengers or ignoring these messengers because the words were not enough. And finally, God said, that's enough of that. I'm going to go down there myself. Like every parent says, don't make me come down there. So at some point, you've got to go directly. You've got to get involved. And so that's what God did. He entered our world in a form we could understand and identify with. And one of the interesting implications of that is when Jesus wore our form, he redeemed the flesh. If you grew up in the church, you know that flesh is not a positive word in church world. Like you would not consider a compliment if I said to you, you know, brother, sister, you are so fleshly. I just, I want to just pay you that compliment. You are so fleshly. How many of you guys would be encouraged by that? Fleshly is a synonym for sinful, wicked, carnal, dark. You like bad things. So flesh is automatically associated with that part of us that is corruptible and weak and that really likes things we should not like. It's the part of us that makes us say things like, hey, I'm only human. And that's the way in defeat and fatalism, we kind of say, what do you want from me? I'm just meat. Stop, acting for, stop asking for me to behave like an angel or like a spirit or like God himself. I am just meat. I am what I am. And what Jesus did when he became human, when he took on human form, was he redeemed what it means to be human. You know, for most cases, when something clean touches something unclean, that clean thing becomes dirty, right? Like if you have a clean spoon right out of the dishwasher and you dip it into your dog's poop, do you say, look how clean the dog poop just became because a brand new spoon touched it? Of course not. You say, put that, put that spoon in the garbage can. It's dirty now because in our world, everything clean that touches something dirty becomes dirty. Contamination only flows one way. But when Jesus took on our form, he did something miraculous. What he did was reverse the usual direction of contamination. And he said, this time, that which is absolutely clean is touching that which is dirty. And the dirty thing 
now has a chance of being made clean. That never happened before. How does that which is dirty become clean by contact with that which is pure? What that means is that our flesh, although it is that part of us that is weak and corruptible and likes bad things, Jesus proved to us in his person that our flesh is also potentially the dwelling place of God. That the fullness of the presence of God can also live in this. You know, I I remember hearing a story when I was in youth group. I don't know if it was relevant to this particular message, but it stuck with me. of, Of the story of a kid who had bought a garage sale violin and just got discouraged because it was so cruddy and all the other kids on his orchestra had such nice violins. And one day he met an old man, he thought nothing of him, but the old man picked up his garage sale violin and he began to play the most beautiful music. The story goes later, he found out that it was one of the best violinists on earth. And what he proved was it's not the violin that's flawed, it's who picks it up. And what he proved to that young boy was Don't keep thinking that the reason you can't make beautiful music is because your violin is ratchet. The reason you can't make good music is because the right musician hasn't begun to strum on those strings, to run his bow over the strings of your life. There is nothing in being human that inherently has to equal defeatedness, corruptibility, weakness. That's how we start out. But in Christ, the hope that rises for us is that I don't have to say foolish things like, I'm only human. Being human is great dignity. In all of the creation, only humans bear the image of God. Only humans have a pathway to salvation. I don't know if God will throw some dogs and cats up in heaven for our hearts, but... We're the only ones of whom he explicitly says, you are like me, you are made in my image, and one day you can be with me forever. That is what he did for the flesh. What are the implications to us of God becoming a human being and taking on flesh? Let me run quickly through some things that this means to us about him and for us. The first thing we see in that is he made the first move. You guys know that in any conflict, the person who makes the first move begins the process of reconciliation. And that's important because I've been in a lot of arguments where the easiest thing in the world is just kind of cross your arms and go, nope, I'm not going to cross the room. You want to make up with me, you come, you come groveling, you beg me for forgiveness, you tell me how wrong you were. Until that happens, I'm just going to sit right here and wait because that's the natural tendency for human beings when we are in conflict, especially if we believe we are in the right. Let me ask you a question. In the break of relationship between humankind and God, who was in the right and who was in the wrong? Did God do something bad to us? To cause the break. So think about what a huge statement it is that the one who was offended was the one who made the first move. He drew near to us. He did not fold his arms in heaven and say, hey, angels, come over, check this out. I told them they have to try to get up to heaven. Watch them grovel and jump and bend over backwards trying to get up here. They're never going to make it, but it's fun to watch. 
I have, I have to say, if I were God, I might at least spend a century doing that. Just going, let's just tell them you have to do these things to be made clean and watch what they do. God instead was the God who consistently came down. They would kill one prophet, he would send another. They would fall into slavery because they rebelled, because they did this or because they did that. And he's the one who kept coming down and rescue through the whole cycle of the book of Judges. One time after another, they would cry out in distress. He would save them. They would rebel, and he would save them again. God has always been the one who, no matter how wronged he is, makes the first move towards reconciliation. If you are at peace with God, it wasn't because you crossed the room and said something to him. It's because before you ever did a single thing to reconcile with God, he always made the first move towards us. That's the only way peace with God has ever been possible. I love what Paul writes in Romans 5.8. The proof of God's love, the demonstration of it is this, that while we were still his enemies, still sinners, still unrepentant, unapologetic, Christ still died for us. That's a very familiar verse. It's one that's very easy to gloss over. But I'll tell you right now, most of us won't even send an email. Most of us won't even walk across a room to begin reconciliation. I, I think it's profound to meditate on the idea that God died for us. I, I think that also reminds us that at some level, all reconciliation requires a kind of death. Something has to die for an offense to be covered over. Unless, of course, you have a time machine. I'm, I'm reading a book right now about time travel, and that would be so convenient if we could just, you know, you don't have to worry about mistakes. You could always just go back and undo everything. So a time machine is really just our fantasies of having a Control-Z option for reality, right? Control-Z, control Some of us would just be on that all day long. There would be two keys on the keyboard that you can't read. That's a fantasy, isn't it? that I could just make everything right by going back to the original offense and doing it better and making it right. And that's the lunacy of what we insist on sometimes. You did that. Yeah, I know. Well, you did it. Yes, I know. Well, you did it. What do you want me to do? Get in a time machine, go back and not do it? It stands forever. It's right there. I can't erase it. It is there. I did it. Maybe I'm sorry, maybe I'm not, but I can't undo it. I can't. There's nothing I can do to make you forget it, to make that thing not have happened. And so at some point, if there's going to be any peace between us, someone has to die. Because otherwise, that thing just stands like a statue, a monument that says, remember that? Yes, for all time I remember. The thing that has to die is the unforgiveness, the offense that insists that unless you make it right, there's no moving forward. What God taught us is, I can make it right just by saying this. I forgive you. Let's begin again. I forgive you. Let's begin again. Do you remember what Pastor Frank reminded us so powerfully, passionately about a month ago? Is that if we really want to honor Christ... We have to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So what the incarnation means to us is in every time that we rebel against God, turn away from Him, we break the relationship, 
He doesn't say, jump up to me. He says, I'm coming down there. He makes the first move. He crosses the gap to make restoration possible. That doesn't mean I I just sit there. I do have to repent. I have to own what I've done. But think about this. If he's not willing to forgive, my apology doesn't achieve a thing, does it? All the power is in the offended party. I could grovel all day, and I can't make him restore the relationship. But what he says is, if you repent, I will always accept. I've already crossed the universe to enter your space. And so you can make every effort. So the first thing that means is we thank Jesus because he always made the first move to restore our relationship. And we embody Jesus when we are willing to do the same thing in our broken relationships. Short of a time machine, that's the only way we're ever going to move forward in life without collecting a trophy shelf of enemies and past friendships. Some of us, that's what we have. We have a shelf in our house. This is the guy I used to be friends with. This is the person I used to have in my life. I, I, I liked him once, but all ejected because I didn't have a time machine, unfortunately. If anyone invents a time machine, let me know. But until then, we have the gospel. Amen? You can say amen back. That's okay. It's, it's, not, it's not rude to speak at church. Let me give you a second one. <clears throat> it means that Jesus walked in our shoes. I found out over the course of my life that it's way easier to judge someone than to understand someone. How many of you know that's true? I mean, it's amazing how fast I have people figure it out. I look at them, I hear the situation, I'm like... You know that, that, that universal, it's, it's so universal that you can make an emoji out of it and every culture knows what you're trying to describe. The rolling eye emoji. It's so easy to judge another person. You see what they did and it's clear, it's on the public record. There it is. They did it. I know why. I got it all figured out. It's especially easy to judge someone when you stand at a distance and never get close enough to find out what's going on with them. I'm not talking about justifying. I'm not talking about explaining away. I'm simply saying we have to understand people in order to understand and process what they've done. And the truth is most of us, we really don't bother to do that. We begin with the way it made me feel, the way it affected my life, and my quick assessment of what you must have meant. That's my story. I'm sticking with it. And every time the person says, no, you don't understand, you feel like they're just trying to defend themselves, justify themselves, get you off their case. But sometimes it's so frustrating because what you're really trying to do is say, I I feel bad, but I'm trying to explain myself. There have been days where I've been repenting for something I've done in prayer, and yet somewhere in my spirit, I want to say to God, but you know what I've been going through? I'm not defending myself, but I want to explain. I'm in a bad way right now. My soul feels empty. This is happening. That's happening. And the comfort I get is that while God is still not happy with the choice I've made, I don't feel after a moment of prayer like God's going, What is wrong with you? Did you ever ask that question of someone else? What is wrong with you? What kind of person are you? Who does that? It's not a rhetorical question. 
Because that otherwise normal human being that you once called lover, friend, sibling, family, they've done something inexplicable. And rather than just proclaiming what is wrong with you, what if we made that a real question? Instead of saying it sucks to be you or what kind of person are you, what if we said, what are you going through? Why are you doing this? What is happening to you that you are behaving this way? This phrase, walking in someone's shoes, talks about making every effort to put yourself in their situation. And if that's not practical or feasible, then at least mentally, you work very hard at trying to understand what is their world out of which they did what they did. That's what God did for us. You know, in the very first Christmas, some angels, what an understatement, a whole mess of angels, like fill the sky, appeared to a bunch of shepherds, lowly shepherds in a field. And the first people to hear the Christmas announcement were the lowest class of workers in the culture. And to these shepherds, here's the announcement that was given. Today, if you've grown up in Sunday school, you've got this memorized, right, from all this, the Christmas pageants. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. That's huge. We'll pick up on that a little later, in a couple weeks. But he is the Messiah the Lord. That doesn't strike us that much as non-Jews, but if you're a Jew and you heard that, something huge has just happened. This will be a sign to you. So you're like, okay, the Messiah has finally come. Thousands of years in the waiting. Where is he? And imagine the shock as the following words were spoken. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I don't know about you, but it would feel like the, the air just got let out of the balloon because the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, is finally here. <clears throat> and like, where is he? What hotel is he staying at? Where's his entourage? And the, what you hear instead is, go to a barn outside a hotel, look inside the feeding trough, and you're going to find a little baby. And my first question as a thinking man would be, how long are we supposed to wait for this kid to grow up and save us? In an efficiency-oriented world, my first impulse is to go, That is the most impractical and ridiculous strategy for saving the world. Why come to the earth as a baby and have to spend the first 16 years growing up, learning to drive a donkey, going through acne, getting potty trained? What's the point of that? Speed it up a little bit. Now, some of us, I can picture it right now. I'm like, seriously, God, come on. Just come down as an adult. At least come down as an 18-year-old so we can get on with it. The crazy thing is after he's grown, he just hangs out in the family business. He's a good son, a good brother, a good friend, a good villager. And then at the age of 30, how many of you are not even 30 yet? Yeah, (laughs) we have an old church. Okay. At the age of 30, when most of us are like, seriously, what's my life going to be about? He begins the saving work. That's insanity to me. It seems like the dumbest possible way to go about doing this. And yet this is God I'm talking about, so I'm sorry, Lord. I don't mean to call you dumb. I'm just saying the plan seems dumb to a fool like me. So what's behind it? Why does God come as a baby? What's the logic 
and the rationale for doing it his way. Well, Hebrews 4.15 gives us a clue. The writer of Hebrews, in speaking about Jesus, says this very important thing. This is one of the verses in the Bible very much worth memorizing. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Well, how is he able to empathize with us? Because he is one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Do you know how many times someone's been trying to speak truth into my life, and I've tried to push them away by saying, you don't know anything. You don't understand. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't need to hear your preaching, your lecturing. And that's a very easy, convenient way to push someone away. You don't know. You don't understand. And we can say that to most people, and it's probably largely true. They don't know. But that's one thing that we're never going to be able to say to Jesus. You can say a lot of things to God and about God, but one thing you cannot ever say truthfully is you don't get me. You have no idea what it's like to be us. You don't understand. Think about the cost to Jesus to be able to empathize with us. He took no shortcuts. He literally began completely dependent on the care of two fallen human beings. He went through a period where he would sit in his own filth unless someone cleaned him. He would starve to death unless someone fed him. And he went through the entirety of our experience. I don't know about you, but I've never had anyone in my life who that thoroughly identified with me. And I can tell you, all my self-righteousness notwithstanding, I've never made that much effort to understand anyone else. Have you? How many of you would actually go to the, the lengths to transition so you could understand your spouse's gender? That's crazy. But that in the weirdest ways, like what God did. He completely changed something about himself. He took on a form that is not the form that he spent eternity in. The eternal word of God became flesh. He didn't just take his flesh and transport over. He became something. So that from the beginning of that experience, he could identify with every piece of it that we go through. One thing we can thank God for at Christmas is that the God we cry out to and pray to is not a God who, like so many other people in our lives, judge us from a distance, roll their eyes, shake their heads. He has gone to great lengths to understand why it's so hard to be human. Why sometimes, even though we know better, we make terrible choices. We feel like we're trapped. The strength of temptation pulling at our hearts, he understands how powerful a pull that is. He understands, and so he has the right to call us to a different life. We embody Jesus when we're like that towards others when we refuse to judge from a safe distance, when we make every effort to enter into someone else's situation and put on their shoes. Do you know that I believe the majority of conflicts in our church and in our world could be solved if truly 
the people involved could just for a moment in full honesty and, and vulnerability step into the shoes of the other person. Just for a moment. It doesn't erase the pain of the things we do to each other, but just for a moment, if we could truly enter into the other's shoes, it would begin the process of understanding and peacemaking. Let me give you one last thing. I'd like to end in time for us to have a little prayer and a song. The incarnation means that Jesus entered our brokenness. And by brokenness, what we mean is our messed up world, our lives such as they are. Raise your hand if you've ever been on a mission trip that took you to a really hard place. Yeah, I I have too. I've stayed in some places that were so hard that throughout the night, I didn't catch one wink of sleep because I was afraid things, very scary things, would crawl into my bodily cavities. Not like mysterious things, stuff I was seeing sitting by the edge of my bed, like, I ain't going to sleep because I'm watching you. Big stuff. And in places that were so dirty, you would lay down and put your hand on on what passed for a mattress, and you would feel movement. You know, talk about that kind of, like, really challenging places. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, Jesus, only for you. And you endure that sleepless night, and you get through it. And here's the crazy thing about that. I endure it, not because I'm so strong, but the one hope I cling to is I get to go home eventually. <laughs> I can put up with anything. And some of you, your, your, your life is at such a higher level that our summer retreats represent that for you. Oh, that dharma, I don't know. Like, God bless you. You're, you're living five-star, man. If our summer retreat is that the worst place you stay... But I'm telling you right now, the reason we endure it is not because we have inherent strength, but because we know it's temporary. Eventually, I get to go back home. I visited my, my compassion kid in Bolivia. I was a guest in his house, and I'm like, I love you. But if I had to trade lives with you, no way. I'm so glad I get to live where I live and send you money to help you. But if I had to trade lives with you, I'd question the existence of God. That's how hard it was. It really stretched me. And I read in John 1.14 that this God of ours became flesh and he didn't just drop in for a visit. He didn't do a short-term salvation trip. He made his dwelling among us. It's even more profound when you read it in the other two translations, the New Living Translation and Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible called The Message Listen to the words they use. So the word became human and made his home among us. Or in the message it says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I don't know about you, but I've sympathized and empathized with a lot of people. I know you have too. I've done a lot to show my care for people who are worse off than I am. But if what God called him to involve not just visiting, but moving, we'd have to renegotiate quite a bit. If I had to stay in Bolivia and let Franz Kayata and his family take over my house in Bartlett, I'd have to pray a lot harder before I went on that mission trip. I would. It's not, it's not easy to drop into a place like that and help. 
but it's infinitely easier than trading places. Infinitely. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians these powerful words that explain in part the nature of the incarnation. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now that's a really big statement. I don't know that literally carrying that out is God's plan for everyone in this room right now. I think we're all in different places in our journey. But it might be the case that for at least a few of us, God's going to use that word to begin a process in your life that's going to remap everything. Because part of the reason you've never quite felt like yourself is because everything you do to express your salvation and your worship of him has felt like half measures and gestures. It's never quite felt like everything, the plunge. Recently we announced that our brother Stan left his cushy, high-paying job in the corporate world to come work for us. Such a moment is one of those plunges where there's no going back. He can go to every cocktail party and say, hey, I work in corporate IT, what do you do? From now on, at every gathering he goes to, he has to say, yeah, I'm a pastor. It's not just a job, it's an identity. And you have to go for the rest of your life through what I go through. Everyone goes, oh, I don't know what to do with that. Sorry about the swearing earlier, and let me just put away the wine. It's very awkward. You went through a thing where everything gets redefined because there was a before this day and an after this day. I believe for some of us, that's the pull that God is making on your heart. No more visitations into the kingdom. Move. Pick up everything, trade places. Enter that world. Don't just throw help packages with parachutes over the wall. Be there in the flesh and trade places so that through your poverty, others might become rich. And if you hear that and the Holy Spirit's pulling on you, come talk to one of the pastors or leaders so we can pray with you and process it. I think it would be the adventure of a life to heed that call. But if you're not there yet, or if you'll never get there, at the very least, here's another way for us to respond to this. Instead of gestures or moments or events or campaigns, hear the call of God to have more lasting, enduring engagements serving him. For some of us, it might be something as simple as, I'm on a team where I'm on rotation because I could live with that, but I'm sensing that the need of this ministry I care about is greater than a rotation will allow. And I'm going to just take a big dare and just go, this year, I'm signing up. I'm on the team. That's it. I'm going to try for a year, and if I'm still alive next year, I'm going to keep going. That's a plunge. I think that's a huge way to respond to this. I just shared with you another way you can do that is, most of us, we might do something for kids, but what if God's call on your heart right now is do something even more involved than that? Don't just do something at one event for a kid, but for a year, make a commitment every week to give that kid an hour of your undivided attention. 
an hour of your heart, an hour of love and attention and care focused on one other human being and see what that does to a fragile heart. Some of these kids have not received love at all in their lives at home. And what you'll see is a plant that finally gets moved to the windowsill where sunlight and regular water cause this wilted thing to rise again and bloom. Some of you will get a front row seat to watch that actually happen. I remember over the course of Jeannie's engagement with her child and kids, Hope, Imani Blue. What a sweet girl. One of the funniest, craziest girls. She started out struggling academically. And over the course of the engagement with Jeannie, I'm not going to give Jeannie all the credit. I credit to God, to the teachers, all of it. But that little girl, her heart began to be rebuilt. She ended up getting accepted into the gifted program at her school. That was huge. I was so happy in my heart the day I heard that news. The difference it makes when we don't just dabble. But one of the ways that we actually apply the incarnation and embody that spirit in our lives is we say, Lord, this year, what's one place where I've been dabbling that you're asking me to move in? To have a more permanent way of identifying with you and others. Being there. Moving in and not just visiting. Let me end with this. At Christmas time, there's so many wonderful traditions where we celebrate everything that is good and precious in our lives. How many of you just love Christmas time? Like, you, you can't get enough. You wish all year was Christmas. Yeah, I, I'm kind of like that. Largely because growing up, my mom, and it's been really hard watching her get older and more tired and and less able and willing to do some stuff. She was the anchor of every good tradition in our extended family. My mom made Christmas so unbelievably memorable for me growing up. Just amazing experiences. Because of it, to this day, Christmas is one of the best times of the year for me. And I think it's appropriate. God doesn't begrudge us this. It's good for us to use this time of year to celebrate and reinforce that which is good and precious to us. To gather with friends and family, have good food, good conversation. To decorate in festive ways. It's been a really weird year. My street is so depressing. I don't know what it is. Nobody hung Christmas lights this year. You know how crazy it's been. But normally we decorate the house very festive. We exchange gifts that delight and awe the heart. You're like, wow, thank you. And we just love that feeling. All those are good things. But shouldn't we also during Christmas when we commemorate the arrival of Jesus into the world and into our lives, shouldn't we also in some tangible, real way acknowledge him who we celebrate? How weird to go to a birthday party and just give gifts to each other, to the other guests and the birthday boys like, I thought it was my birthday. You know, we tritely say things like, Jesus is the reason for the season. And let's put Christ back in Christmas. But I think those are powerful statements. What does that mean practically? Let me give you this as we close, and then we'll sing a song. This week, I was reading J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. How many of you have read that book? It's a classic. Really great book. I read it 30 years ago when I was uh, just beginning this journey as a Christian. And uh, I picked it up again this week and read it. And in chapter 5, 
It's called the incarnate God or God incarnate. He talks about this idea of incarnation. And here's what he had to say. I want to share these words with you. Sorry, what did I just do? There we go. We talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. He goes on to say, the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. Can you imagine the difference we'd make in the world as Christ followers if every one of us took seriously that that's what Christmas spirit meant and year-round we sought to live this way? I, I don't want any of us to feel weird about the celebrations that we engage in at Christmas, the beautiful traditions, the decorations, and all of it. I'm looking very much forward to it. The, the baton, the torch has been passed in our family from Jeannie to my wife and to my brother's wife. They're doing their best, and I think they will grow into those big shoes. I love those traditions and those celebrations. I look forward to them. But as I get older, I think each Christmas, I feel this tug on my heart. Don't let that be the end of it. This Christmas, take a moment and think about whether the very spirit of the incarnation, this idea that God came to our world as a baby, what that reveals about him and the way he feels about us. And think about what the implications are of that for us. That if we want to be like Christ, then at the very least, we must embody the spirit of the incarnation. In every conflict you find yourself in, embody Christ by being the one willing to make the first move. In every instance where you're tempted to stand at a distance and judge your fellow human being, make every effort to step into their shoes and understand rather than judge them. And starting from the place you can most readily go, stop visiting the needs and the brokenness and the poverty of others. Make a decision at some level to move in, to go there, to get involved and to stay. To trade places if you have to. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.